there isn't a quick fix for tendons. That's the frustration for me. People want something that's latest, greatest, expensive. They're not always the answer for tendons. The answer is unless you have the capacity in your tendon muscle, kinetic chain and brain, then you're going to have tendon pain. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Jill Cook, I'm so excited to sit down with you. You on one side of the world and me on another, but I'm really excited. One of my friends and mentors, Brett Winchester, who's been on the podcast, introduced me to your work. And I basically have been reading research articles and watching your YouTube videos ever since. So it's really exciting to have you to sit down and chat. Yeah, great. Thanks. So for our listeners who are not well-versed in tendon pathologies, because that is really your kind of focus of work and treatment options and risk factors in tendon injuries, mm -hmm. I hear you talk about how you can compare tendons to springs and how tendons store and release energy. So can you just, for the people who are maybe more of the layperson who might be struggling with patellar tendonitis or an Achilles tendinopathy, can you just talk about how why you compare tendons to springs okay so tendons are subjected to three different loads which is the tensile load compressive loads and friction loads the tensile load that tendons use most and are most important for our athletic behavior is where they act like a spring so that allows people to use a non-muscle way of propelling themselves either forward or up. Now, the pressure that that energy storage and release or that spring-like behaviour puts on tendons is really big and that's the, that's the load that seems to get us in trouble with our lower limb tendons at the very least. You talk about how like tendons talk to you 24 mm -hmm. hours later, right? Which I think yep. when we go through school, sometimes as physios and as chiropractors, there's certain things we look for to diagnose a tendon pathology. Can you talk about why, what some of the things to diagnose, like if someone was struggling, thinking they have like Achilles tendonitis, some of the ways to kind of help diagnose it and then maybe sure. what we've been told in the past that is not accurate? Yeah, this is a really big point in the assessment and management of tendons because too often symptoms are ascribed to a tendon because the imaging is abnormal. So the ultrasound or the MRI shows pathology in the tendon and it's sore to touch. Now, neither of those things are diagnostic because you can have pathology in a tendon and not have any symptoms. And palpation soreness doesn't tell us anything because you can be sore in a tendon when you have a joint condition. You can be sore in a tendon when you have other pathology around the area. So if those are your two diagnostic criteria, then you're going to be wrong in your diagnosis quite a few times. Now, that's exactly what we see in clinical practice where people come in having had treatment for tendinopathy 
that hasn't worked. And the reason is, is they don't have tendon pain in the first place. So I think differential diagnosis is critical. And the two things that we use as a differential diagnosis are localised pain that stays localised. So the first thing about tendon pain is it doesn't move around. It stays in the tendon and it stays localised in the tendon. So if somebody uses more than one or two fingers to show where the pain is, for us, that's a very good indication that it's not tendon pain. The second thing is that it has to have a load-dependent increase in pain. So if you load a tendon with a low-level load and get a pain score, as you increase the load on the tendon, the pain should go up. Now, if it doesn't do that, then you have to, again, think about other structures in the area that might be mimicking tendon pain. But I, I couldn't iterate more that getting the diagnosis right is critical and not using imaging or palpation soreness as your diagnostic criteria. So what have you found commonly? Because I think, I don't know how it is in Australia, but I feel like doctors are quick to order imaging. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. like calm the anxiety or (laughs) just to like get a, what they would think is an answer. Why do you think in the past MRI as an imaging has been used for tendon pathologies? I think it's like all conditions. We have had a pathoanatomical approach to all conditions that if there's a structural abnormality, then that must be the source of the pain. But if you look across musculoskeletal medicine, it's actually failing us everywhere. Mm. So we know back pain that imaging is not correlated to symptoms. We know in hip and knee osteoarthritis that imaging isn't correlated to symptoms. So tendons aren't that different. What we're finding is that imaging often doesn't help us. In fact, probably leads us astray more than it helps us. What we now have to do is educate the public, educate the physicians, radiologists about the role of imaging in these, in the diagnosis and management of these conditions, because until that happens, we're going to be continuing on the same pathway, which is imaging dependence. Right. So if it Let's say it comes up as like diagnosis or in the impression of an MRI as tendonitis. I mean, I've heard you say that like, what was it? 66% of tendons, injuries, there was, there's not even any pain associated with it initially. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So if you took an ultrasound into the NBA Mm -hmm. and reached everybody's patella tendon, you would find pathology in 50% or more of the tendons in that cohort. Now, some of them are symptomatic and probably a relatively low percentage, maybe 10%, but it leaves a large percentage of people who have pathology who either don't have current symptoms or perhaps have never had symptoms. And the Canison Yoza paper from many years ago showed that people with enough pathology to rupture, that is they don't have any normal tissue left, 66% of those people had never had a symptom in their life. So you can have profound tendon pathology and never have a symptom. So you can't look at a picture in somebody who has tendon pain and say, well, that's the source of the symptoms because it might be, but it might not be. Right. And when you talk about loading it, you talk like, for example, let's say we were talking about the patellar tendon. Would it be doing a squat or walking upstairs, something like that? No, neither of those store energy. So to Similarly, load a tendon, you have to store energy in the tendon. So you can, you might get pain on a squat and walking upstairs, but it really doesn't help us discriminate from patellofemoral pain because patellofemoral pain will give us, patellofemoral joint symptoms can occur in both those conditions. 
it's the change of direction and the jumping that really load the tendon. Mm-hmm. And they can also cause patellofemoral symptoms, but they'll actually really ramp up patella tendon pain. So that's about the increase in the load on the tendon and looking for a, a, a related increase in symptoms. So that's part, should be part of your examination and should tell you if the tendon is a source of symptoms. Yeah. What would be some causes of tendon breakdown outside of like a biomechanical cause? Ooh, so onset of tendon pathology, you mean? Well, I think sometimes with like as practitioners who really focus on the biomechanics, sometimes we overlook like, oh, maybe this is a postmenopausal woman and there's other factors that affect the, t- the quality of the tissue. Okay, so I think if, if I understand you correctly, the causes of tendon pathology can be different from the causes of tendon pain. So the causes of tendon pathology are really about repetitive load on the tendon. So what we know is you increase the incidence or the prevalence of tendon pathology as you get older, but it's not because you age, it's because you have more exposure to load. So if you load a lot when you're a younger person, you have more chances of having tendon pathology when you're older. If you sit the whole time, you have less chance of having tendon pathology. So that's true of many of the tendons. It's probably not true in the patella tendon, and that's sort of the area we're doing the research in at the moment. We think that the patella tendon is different from the other tendons from that perspective. The onset of tendon pain comes from overload, so a change in load. So what we see commonly is somebody's done something different. So they're used to running five kilometres and then they run 10, or they're used to running five kilometres and they change and start to run hills. That's very common. The second most common is still a change in load, but they've had time off and they've returned to activity. So they might have had six weeks holiday, they've come back and they've started to do their usual run again. Now the tendon has changed in the six weeks in terms of its mechanical stiffness and in terms of its muscle capacity and things like that. So that's still a change in load. So change in load is by far the biggest thing that brings on tendon pain. So they're different. Okay. Is there any sort of like functional medicine components that people should be thinking about? Definitely insulin resistance type 2 diabetes affects tendon structure and people with type 2 diabetes have an increased risk of tendinopathy and people with tendinopathy have an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. So that's definite. Cholesterol can deposit at very high, when it's at very high levels in the blood, can deposit in the tendon, that can affect it. And there's definitely an increased incidence of or prevalence of tendon pain in postmenopausal women. So changes in female sex hormones clearly have an effect on tendons. There's probably many other things. As we said, age is related to load exposure, so that's one thing. Men have more tendinopathy than women. That's another thing. Ankle dorsiflexion is highly related to Achilles and patella tendon. Supinated foot is related to Achilles and patella tendinopathy. So there's quite a few things that can actually influence the key factor, which is load. Yeah. What are you finding in your research in terms of the patellar tendon that's different from the other tendons? Okay. So we've done a study over three years in young ballet dancers and looked at how the tendon developed during adolescence. So the literature suggests that patellar tendon pathology 
exists by the time you're 16 or 17. So it's quite different to other tendons. Other tendons can have pathology early, but it's not very common. But in the patellar tendon, we see it very commonly in particularly young jumping men, but occasionally young jumping women. So in our research, we looked at how the tendon developed over puberty. And what we found is that it it attaches, it matures. The attachment of the tendon matures through a cartilage interface through the peripubertal years. So in that study, we saw five out of 55 athletes develop pathology and we're redoing this study in much bigger numbers at the moment. But our hypothesis at the moment is if you load too much while the tendon is trying to attach to the patella, that in fact you disrupt that attachment and develop a pathology. Once you have done that, you have it for life. So when you think of like the youth and the adolescents that are in sports, would you recommend maybe they diversify or like how would you avoid that at such a young age? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think we yet have the evidence to say what we should do, but clearly there's a critical time for tendon maturation in in and around the patella and that it appears that load might be a factor that can change that maturation process. But first, we need to confirm what we saw in this pilot study. Second, we probably then need to do an intervention where we alter the loading parameters in a group of young jumping athletes and compare that to athletes that we don't alter a load in. But certainly, you know, the hypothesis would be that there's there's a window where too much load might be bad for these tendons. When it is and how you would alter that, I don't think we know yet. Yeah. Do you find a difference in the quality and the tissue of the tendon for people who mainly focus on like lifting weights and strength versus people who might only focus on cardio? Like someone who's in CrossFit versus someone who is training for ultra marathons? It's really hard to get tissue. So I don't think we could say what's happening in the tissue. You can test mechanical strength and particularly the strain of a tendon fairly easily. And what is evidence is the mechanical stiffness of the tendon is dependent on loading and particularly isometrics and heavy slow resistance training. So the stiffer the tendon, the stiffer the spring, the more energy it can store. So it's probably a better spring. Probably is weights that do that for you. Okay. And then do you see anything in terms of people who struggle with hypermobility, so like tissue laxity or maybe not necessarily like an earlier Danlos, but close in terms of like the, yeah. the tendons. And, you know, I hear people who, and we see a lot of it in the clinic, who have patellar dislocations and like the tissue is just really lax. Do you, do you see something different in terms of that kind yeah. of clinical finding? Yeah, sort of clinically it makes sense that these people might struggle a little bit more, but we've always included a hypermobility test in all our research and it's never come up. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, it doesn't appear to, in research, to be one of the risk factors for tendon injury. But clinically, I think you probably account for it, but whether we should account for it or not, I don't think we know yet. What was the test that you were... So the, the Batons test and the modified oh, Batons yeah. Yeah. which is a series of 
hypermobility tests and a, a score out of nine. Yeah. What do you find in terms of success with cortisone injections or, you know, now it's kind of like the PRP stem cell treatment? What do you, what do you find? Because I think sometimes people want like the quick fix or kind of what's the latest, greatest thing out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- you know, that's about an hour of conversation, I think. <laughs> If people do want a quick fix, there isn't a quick fix for tendons. That's the frustration for me. People want something that's latest, greatest, expensive. They're not always the answer for tendons. The answer is unless you have the capacity in your tendon muscle, kinetic chain and brain, then you're going to have tendon pain. Now, the quick fix for that doesn't exist. You actually have to progressively load that whole series of structures to get a tendon and that has the capacity to do the load that you want. The problem we have with that as as a solution is it's not sexy, it's slow, and someone out there on the internet is offering you something that will fix your tendon. But what we know is that the structure doesn't matter. If 50% of the current NBA playing population has pathology in their patellar tendon and is playing and training without any symptoms, why would fixing or changing the pathology by injecting something in it have a have an outcome when it actually probably is, isn't the source of pain. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what you inject in a tendon, you're not going to change the structure back to normal. Nothing will change tendon structure back to normal. So, again, it's a little bit like the radiology. It's about educating people. Certainly in the clinic, the people we see have tried all that and not done well. And so our buy-in or adherence to a slow progressive loading program is better than some people because everyone we see has tried the PRP and all the other things and really not done very well with them. The evidence is overwhelming. The PRP does not have a positive effect on tendons and the literature will probably go the same way with stem cells and any other guru intervention you want to think about. Yeah. Can you give us a glimpse into what the program of slow progressive load looks like? Sure. We usually start with isometrics because they help us with pain and cortical inhibition. So that's a good way of getting people to be able to load their tendons in in a less painful way. Then it's really about getting the muscle attached to the tendon and the rest of the kinetic chain as strong as possible. So it's a heavy, slow resistance training. Then it's about progressive spring loads on the tendon where we place the faster loads where the tendon has to store energy and then finally the the loads that cause the tendon to store and release energy. And then it's about repetition and endurance and sport-specific so that the person's tendon, muscle, kinetic chain, brain all have the capacity to do the sport they want to do. Yeah. I think sometimes for people who are struggling with discomfort, wonder what is rehab doing? Are we rehabbing, right? Because it's uh, it's like full body strength and then, you know, loading in a certain way. Are we changing muscle, tendon, brain, biomechanics? Like how would, what would you tell someone that's a patient? What's okay. going on? Because it's tricky. Right. It, look, that's a really hard question. It really depends on what the patient wants to hear. I think The answer to the question really is we don't know which part of that continuum we're affecting the most and we're probably affecting everything with a rehabilitation program. What your patient wants to hear 
is that their tendon is improving. So I would sell them the message that they wanted to hear, knowing that you probably don't fully know the answer and knowing that your program is going to be loading all of the structures that we've talked about in some way and it's just then a question of getting the outcome that you want. Yeah. Sometimes we see the patellar tendon getting used for an ACL repair surgically, mm-hmm. right? I'm always curious. I was like, okay, so they just put, took a little bit of your tendon and put it in your knee. What is it like? What is the quality of the tissue? Is it going to be weaker? Is that big scar there going to affect motor control and biomechanics? Have you seen anything in terms of that? So what happens with that? As soon as you incise a tendon, you get a completely different response. So you'll get a bleed, which will give you an inflammatory proliferative maturative response. So your tendon will double or triple in size. No issues with that. Mm-hmm. So you end up with tissue that is inferior in quality to the original but much more of it so you actually still have the same strength mechanically it probably can't operate as good a spring as it originally was but for most sports it will be adequate so it doesn't really change very many things particularly in sports that are more multifactorial such as basketball maybe if you're a high jumper or a sprinting athlete loss of tendon mechanical properties might change how good you are. But for most sports, it's not going to make much difference. The tendon will never be normal again, but that doesn't appear to have much of an effect. So sometimes we've seen patients who, especially the runners, who have like a really heavy heel strike kind of out in front of them, not under their center, struggling with Achilles pain. And you'll check their dorsiflexion, their ankle dorsiflexion, and it's like, whoa, their ankle is like really mobile in that range. And they'll want soft tissue work. They're like, oh, it needs to get massaged. It feels tight. It feels inflamed. Do you find that runners, if they are striking out in front of them and heavy heel strikers, that it changes symptoms or changes, I don't know, the tendon quality? I don't know anything about tendon quality. What we know from a multitude of injuries in the lower limb is that shorter stride length seems to be an important factor. From a tendon perspective, it will certainly be a factor in hamstring tendinopathy, less so in Achilles and less so in patellar tendon. But there's no doubt that a a considered and shorter stride length will help. Tissue properties, I haven't got a clue. You can use any soft tissue techniques you want, not for the tendon, for the muscles, but it's not the answer to changing the tendon and not the answer to making that person more resilient to load. The only thing that makes a person more resilient to load is loading and so (laughs) exercise-based intervention. Otherwise, you know, I can't see how any of the passive treatments and any of the sort of passive interventions can possibly make a difference. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't stop people using them. And I think they can be used as long as they're used in conjunction with a loading program. I see. I see. Do you have any like really great, interesting cases that you're really excited Mm -hmm. about lately? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, in our clinic, which we call the Desperate and Dateless Clinic, because we see people who have had long-term tendon pain, I think the the answer is probably 50% of people we see have never had tendon pain in the first place. Hmm. And 
managed as having tendon pain. So it comes back to that differential diagnosis. The second part of it is exactly as we talked about, that they've had all of these passive interventions thrown at them. There's not a single person that's been given a decent and progressive and thoughtful loading program and exercise-based intervention. And if you take the time and do that, they all get better. So, you know, we can see people five years down the track, we give them a proper loading program over often is several months, they can return to loading. So I think people have to be much better clinicians at diagnosis and they have to be much, much better at exercise prescription and much less hands-on, passive, modality-focused. Yeah. Are those protocols of rehab out there in the world somewhere? Of course, yeah. We've been talking about them for (laughs) 20-odd years now about progressive loading. Absolutely. But we keep being diverted by quicker and easier interventions that always in the long term show to be not as effective or useful adjuncts, but not necessarily things that change capacity. So many of these interventions will change pain in the short term. Many of these interventions involved a period of rest after you've had the intervention, so you feel better because you're not loading your tendon. But as soon as you return to any sort of loading environment, the tendon fails again. So people report improvements with a lot of these things. So, oh, yeah, I felt great for four or five weeks and um, then it started to get sore again. What, What were you doing when it started to get sore? I started to go back to my usual loading. That's because the actual intervention hasn't helped. But that interim period where they feel better because they're resting and because perhaps their nociceptive input is different makes them think the intervention's helped when, in fact, it probably hasn't. Why do you think people like passive care? Or the system, kind of maybe the healthcare system, kind of like aftercare yeah. doesn't, isn't necessarily the first thing on someone's mind. It's let me lay yeah. down and you fix me. You That's know right. Mean? People want to hand the responsibility of their injury to you and want you to fix it. And that has to be the first point of conversation. This is your problem. I can teach you how to fix this, but I can't fix this myself. And, of course, particularly in the US, is the healthcare system rewards the practitioner for providing passive care. So we're doomed in terms of making people realise that they have to have an active part in, in, in their care. And it's really only when all of the passive stuff's failed that they're prepared to sort of sit up and go, well, hang on, all of that stuff hasn't worked. Maybe I need to contribute to my care in a meaningful way. So education of the patient has to be, for me, central to everything we do because if you don't tell them exactly what the problem is and what you need to do to fix it and what they need to do to fix it, then you're not on the same page. And in people we see, we often can take, because they're such complex presentations, often take an hour or more to assess and treat them. But a really good part of that is why their image isn't important why their diagnosis may or may not be correct, why their previous strategies haven't helped, why the strategies we're prescribing will help. All of that stuff has to be central to your management of the patient. Yeah. How often are you looking at kind of root cause outside of the pain area? So you're talking about factors that contribute to the onset of 
pathology or pain? I think, you know, for example, like sometimes we'll see in our runners, they have poor core stabilization or they don't build intra-abdominal pressure well, and that could possibly be a contributing factor and a piece in the rehab that outside of just like patellar endinopathy. Well, remembering that when we talk about rehab, we're talking about kinetic chain rehab. We're not talking about just tendon or just the muscle. We're talking about the whole kinetic So that's integral to any sort of tendon rehab. I think outside of that and outside of assessing how someone functions as as a leg spring, particularly in the lower limb and how the tendon spring and the leg spring operates, very little is needed. So too often we get sidetracked by things such as, you know, core stability and pelvic movement and I can't even think of all the other things, but that's often not a big factor. It is how are you loading and what is your capacity to load? How are you loading that tendon muscle kinetic chain? Where are the deficits? What do we need to fix those deficits? End of story. It isn't nearly as complex as people want to make it. Mm. You have this great, I think you were speaking at a conference and the title of it was the rehab challenges of patellar versus Achilles tendinopathy, I think is what it was. Can you give us like a little, I mean, we've talked about some of them, like some of the rehab challenges, because from what I was listening and learning was like the, even though they're both tendons, they function differently. And there's from your research, very different rehab challenges with each. Yeah. Okay. So they couldn't be more different. And that's one of the things that I've learned over 20 years of clinical and research experience is I started with a tendon is a tendon is the answer is the Achilles couldn't be more different from the patella tendon if you tried. So the patella tendon is a condition of young jumping men, very rare in young jumping women. It's a condition that probably develops in adolescence. And if you stop jumping, it goes away. Simple. It's couldn't be a more homogeneous condition if you tried. And you can pretty much you could pretty much prescribe a, a rehab to anybody anywhere in the world and use the same almost a recipe. The Achilles occurs in everybody between the age of 10 and 90, in men and women, in sedentary people, in active people, in people who use their tendons as a spring, in people who do much, much less, people who are strong, people who are weak. So that is a tendon that you actually have to address the individual much, much more. You have to look at what capacity they have, what capacity they need, and then you have to work out how you're going to change their current capacity to their required capacity. Now, that will be very different in a sprinting athlete who's 20 compared to someone who's 60 who just wants to play golf. So that's about treating the person. So the the response is treat the person. That's what I say, treat the person in front of you. Yeah. Do you find any changes in the Achilles tendon for someone who's been wearing orthotics for a long time where they might not be getting like the full windlass effect in their foot? And Yeah. So two things about orthotics and Achilles is the first thing, there's absolutely no evidence that orthotics are beneficial for Achilles. There's quite a few randomized controlled trials now. There's no ringing out action. There's no torsioning of the Achilles. There's no hype covascular area. So all of the stuff that I learned is wrong, basically. Um, And then there's this newer research that shows that your foot spring is actually quite an important part of your mechanics. So as soon as you take part of your leg spring away, you have to put the load that that foot spring would have taken onto something else. So for me, 
not only do orthotics not really have never been shown to have a place in the treatment of Achilles, in fact, they may have a negative effect. So I think, again, it's really about managing the person in front of you. You certainly can't just take someone's orthotics away because they don't have foot strength because they've probably not used their foot spring for a period of time. So you might need to rehab their foot mechanics and their intrinsics and their fascia and all of that back to some sort of level before you you remove their orthotics or gradually get them walking around without orthotics and then in bare feet and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of considerations around that as well. I'm curious, how did you get into such a niche? Because <laughs> you got your PhD in what, 2000? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. Okay, no, it's a very simple answer. The I started uh, working in a practice many, many years ago, too many years to even describe, but the, the practice really had a basketball focus and so I started working with a couple of basketball teams and in the men's team we had a lot of patellar tendon problems and I had no clue how to treat them. So I went to the literature and that was just a disaster. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I wasn't any better informed And so we started to play around with our clinical strategies and we started to get some better results. And so I then thought, well, why don't I do some research? So I started off doing some really poor research but did get some good advice from Karam Khan and some better ideas and and went on and did my PhD. And then after that, really decided that I wanted to be primarily a researcher rather than a clinician. I've always kept up a clinical practice but really have turned my focus to research driven by clinical need. Yeah. Do we have the same number of hours in the day? How do you make (laughs) clinic and research? It's like two full-time jobs. Okay. Well, I won't tell you. I, I really, in retrospect, don't know how I survived because I had a toddler I worked with two basketball teams. I had a full-time clinical job and I did my PhD all at once. So I, yeah, in retrospect, should have not survived that, but I did and I'm probably reaping the benefits now. (laughs) Do you have any experience in terms of like the mental? So for example, we have a couple patients who have, they were playing tennis, like running for a ball and just pop and, you know, they're... Next, you know they have a big bulge in their calf because they had a rupture in their Achilles and had to get surgical repair. And to get that person to even think about walking fast across the street, there's like a huge mental block, almost like a trauma. Yes, yes, almost like post-traumatic stress. Yeah, Yeah. people are very fearful of Mm re-rupture. fearful of rupture in the other side. There's really no imaging strategies that help you. At UTC, which is a special imaging, can help a little bit, but your usual MRI, ultrasound, don't help you in terms of demonstrating that the tendon is very good. I think, again, it's about progressive loading and showing them that the tendon can take this load, therefore we're going to add a little bit more. Okay, Let's add a little bit more. So it's about building confidence in movement and confidence in the capacity of the tendon. But it's not simple. You know, there really is fear of loading in these people, not only who've ruptured, but people who have particularly Achilles pain because tendon pain is so closely linked to load. It's not like low back pain where it can hurt when you're sitting on the couch or 
you can be fine when you move. Tendon pain hurts every time you move. So you do get this direct link between loading and pain. So people do get frightened of loading. Progressive exercise is used for everything these days in terms of helping people get through many musculoskeletal things. So I don't think tendons are that different. It's just it's more obvious that we should be doing it. Yeah. What's new on the like the research frontier since <laughs> that's your specialty? Oh, yes, yes. Um, look, we're working through an MBA grant at the moment with looking at diagnosis in patella tendon particularly and finding some very interesting things. We're looking, we're redoing a young adolescent population to see about the maturation of the tendon. We're looking at the role of isometrics versus heavy slow resistance in in managing in-season pain. So we're sort of continuing to build on, on what we have, but just trying to do it in a slightly better way, you know, bigger numbers, more extensive research, different populations, that sort of stuff. Very cool. It's so good to have someone like you putting all that information into this world so that clinicians can be better at what they do. Where can people find you if it was like... <laughs> Nowhere. I hide. I, I, um, I'm not, I don't have a social media presence. I have Twitter, but that's all. Are you active on Twitter? Yeah, very active on Twitter. Oh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I did go to your Twitter. I did notice you were very active on Twitter. Yeah, I am active on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from that, I tend not to uh, have a big presence. I do a lot of international courses, so, but I don't have a site or anything that can tell you where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. I guess I'm happy with what I'm doing in my research. I'm happy with a little bit of teaching I do. So I'm not that easy to find, unfortunately, and I don't, I guess I'm happy with a low profile. Yeah. So let's say someone wanted to take one of your courses or workshops and it's not online anywhere. How would they they know it's happening or would one sign up? It would would have to be just something that was happening in your area. It's a really good idea and maybe I should take it on board of providing a list of where I will be doing courses and conferences I just don't know, I'm certainly not going to set up Facebook or anything like that to do that or LinkedIn or anything like that. Maybe I might look at doing that on the Latrobe website or something like Ah. that. Maybe I'll take that on notice and (laughs) see what I can do. (laughs) You can delegate that off to someone to do. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, you know what universities are like, there's no one to delegate to anymore. Oh, no. It doesn't happen. Do you have a team of researchers? Yeah, we do. We have a, a, a very effective team. It's small and we do get a lot of requests for people to come and visit us. We don't have a lot of facilities. People expect to come to a lab where there's, you know, people in white coats running around with, you know, beakers of liquid in them and stuff like that. We actually, you know, go out into the community to do our research. So we go out and collect data off-site at basketball clubs and schools and things like that. So what we have here is really very little at all, but we are a very cohesive team and we support each other and I think we're quite successful from that perspective. Yeah, that's really the most important piece, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much and thank you so much for your time. It's sunny there. It's it's. It's, 10, it's 11 p.m. here, but I'm so glad that we have the opportunity <laughs> to sit down and chat. Yeah, thanks for staying up late for me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. 
I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys so much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.